This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neo Modern, and Grumpy Old Man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Ruben. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited um, to like get our season going. <laughs> season four. We are in season four. We survived this long. <laughs> in, in the throes of it, and we have an amazing guest today. So that's that's pretty why, pretty much why I'm really excited. Oh, you're not also, excited just to, to talk, talk to me? To really? Also, also Ruben, also oh. very excited to talk to you as always. <laughs> was, oh, thank you. Good recovery. Um, yes. Uh, all right. Shovel, so I, shovel, shovel. Yeah. <laughs> you're never going to get out of that pit. You know, I'm excited. Well, I, I mentioned last time we were talking that I have been a fan of the Santa Fe Photographic Workshops, the Santa Fe Workshops for a long time now. And uh, I never thought that I would ever be able to participate myself. I took a class for the first time uh, in 2020, had a fantastic time. And, and, it, and then next thing I knew, I was able to, um, because of Zoom and the, and the quarantine, I was able to teach my class over, you know, with the Santa Fe workshops for, over Zoom. It was great. And I got to meet Reed Callanan. And so I thought a perfect way to kick off the season was to invite the, the director and founder of the Santa Fe Photographic Workshops to our show. So Suzanne, I'd love to introduce you to Re Reed Callanan. Hey, Reed, how you doing? Hey, Ruben. Good to see you. Hi, Suzanne. Nice to meet you. Nice oh. to meet you too. So have you and Ruben actually met in person then or not no. yet? I do not know that guy. No, only on Zoom. That's it. <laughs> like so many, so many relationships, we only exist in the virtual world. Right. Well, at some point in Santa Fe this summer, um, we will meet because that, I will be out there. Are you? That's great. Yep. I'll be out for six weeks this summer. Well, I will, I will be here. I don't seem to go anywhere. I can't, I can't psych up to travel now that I'm moved here. And sort of everyone's like, oh, the lift, the, the travel bans are lifted. And I'm kind of thinking oh, there's a list of places I'd like to go, but I'd like mostly people to come visit Santa Fe and check mm -hmm. out what's going on. Here. Mostly. I would like to stay here. I would like you to stay put. <laughs> I'm going to just stay home and everyone will travel to me. That's my method here. Nice. I mean, I have a million questions that I never got to ask you, Reed, when you said, hey, would you like to teach a class? But, <laughs> um, but we're all here, and I thought this would be a great chance to introduce you to the people who listen to our show and learn more about the workshops. So I don't know. Why don't we start there? How did, you, how did this all happen? How, what, how, how did you get there? Can we start with that? How long do we have? How long do we have? Oh, we got a little time. As much time as you want. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the abridged version. <laughs> of it. Um, graduated with a, a degree in geology from St. Lawrence University. That's, wait a second, but geology? Geology, That's, yeah. It seems like you're, you're nowhere from, you're a long way from geology, I would say. Well, what happened was London happened in between. So I, I declared my major at St. Lawrence, which is in upstate New York, and you do not want to spend four years in upstate New York in college because it's just too remote and isolated. So I decided I was going to spend my junior year abroad. I decided that when I was a freshman. So sophomore year, I declared my major as geology. 
then I, I flew off to London in September of my junior year and took a program in Richmond at Richmond College. And one of the classes I chose was photography because my parents had given me a camera to record my year in Europe, obviously, <laughs> and I didn't know how to use it. So I signed up for this <laughs> class and that class changed my life. And wow. I decided that I wanted to be a photographer. Now that happened in about a week. And, um, and then further developing that idea, I spent the year photographing and traveling around Europe. I actually went to the Soviet Union for two weeks in the spring and just became so enamored with photography that it took over my life. And when I got back to St. Lawrence, Ruben. Well, I just, I'm curious, like in the old days, you needed to, like someone could give you a camera and you would not know how to use it. Like that's a thing. You'd have to take a class and learn how to do it. Is, that's maybe not even, that doesn't even exist anymore to like be given a camera and not know how to, like would people even think to take a class so they learn how to do it? Is that they someone... still they still don't know how to use the like a fantastic camera like everyone just is lazy and we use our iPhones but I mean I still think like the complexity and the richness maybe they don't take a class but they take a YouTube video yeah. it's just yeah. you want to learn you want to learn the tool and how you can utilize it it just seems like an interesting I, I don't know as he said it I, I kind of thought like God, <laughs> do people give someone a camera and then you think oh I should learn how to use this thing <laughs> I don't know I'm sorry I interrupted Reed. I hope so I, hope <laughs> I was just thinking well, the, about that the uh the iPhone changed all that certainly um that, so the perception now is that you just get this phone that has a camera in it and you know how to use it because it's, it's fairly intuitive but if you invest $5,000 in a DSLR or a mirrorless, you may want to have some time to figure out how to use it. And there are lots of ways to do that. But anyway, back to my story. Uh, I'm in London. I fall in love with photography. I go back to the States, finish up in geology, decide I want to try photography instead of taking two more years to get a master's degree in geology. So I went to the main photographic workshops at Rockport, Maine the summer of 1975 to take a class to learn how to better use the camera that already knew how to use fairly well. And um, so I spent two weeks in Rockport, Maine at the main workshops and basically decided that I had died and gone to heaven because <laughs> I was living on the coast of Maine, which is beautiful. I was yeah. around the world's best photographers. What was, what was the main workshop like at that time? Like who it was, was teaching rough. there? Was it was it? rough, um, rough around the edges in terms of the facilities, in terms of just how everything was organized. But it was a, it was kind of a, a hippie place at that point. Um, and uh, in that first summer that I was there, I got to meet Paul Caponegro, Ernst Haas, Elliot Porter, Jay Maisel, Art Kane. A lot of my heroes of, in photography were teaching there that summer of 1975 in Rockport. So. I went for a two-week class and I stayed 14 years. Wow. I just couldn't get <laughs> it I, out of my system. Can and I ask a question? I don't know if this is true or not, but I read that you actually were inspired to join the main photographic workshop by opening mail. Is that true? Yes. If you want, if you want to backtrack a little bit. To... A little bit. Yeah. I just, I was like, I was hoping, <laughs> I was curious if that was, if that was a fiction or a, a truth. It's the truth. So between graduating with a degree in geology from St. Lawrence uh, and moving to Rockport, Maine, one of my jobs was working in a camera store, which a lot of photographers did because they could buy inexpensive equipment. Right. And it was just a good way to, to pursue your passion for photography. So I worked in a camera store and one of my jobs was opening the mail. 
And so one day I opened the mail and there was this poster, fold out poster from the main photographic workshops. And I remember looking at the cover of that piece and it said main photographic workshops. And those two words, main photographic, just jumped off the page at me. <laughs> and I said to myself, I'm going there. Wow. And that was in April. And then by May, I was in Rockport and was getting involved with the workshops at that point. So I worked in summer camps on the coast of Maine. So I knew the coast of Maine was a place that I had an affinity for and wanted to spend time. And then photography was my passion at that point. So that's why Maine Photographic jumped off that printed page and led me to go to the Maine Photographic Workshops where I spent 14 years and then after 14 years, it's time to move on. You know, the, the seven-year itch multiplied by two, um, Saturn returns, all those things were happening for me in the late, I was late 20s. And so I, I hit sort of hit the ceiling at the main workshops. I was a managing director of the program, had been for about four years. And the business was owned by David Lyman, who was very involved in the business. And he was not going to leave. He was not going to make me a partner he was not going to give me profit sharing. So I decided I need to take my skills and my contacts and go do it on my own. So I decided to open up a workshop. I mean, what else did I know how to do? Nothing. So <laughs> open mail. Um, yeah. I yeah. could open mail pretty well and it was insightful. Geology is all, you could always fall back on your geology. Not at that point. No, I was hooked. <laughs> Ruben, I was hooked. I, I, there was no turning back. And so all I had, well, the only knowledge I had was running workshops. So I decided that I'm going to put it out West because I didn't want to compete with Maine. I don't want to be the, I didn't want to start the Vermont photographic workshops or Connecticut photographic workshops or Rhode Island photographic workshops. I wanted to start something West of the Mississippi. And um, the only place that really had a draw for me at that point was Santa Fe because I started a business Santa Fe in 1980 or 81 because my brother lived there. Oh, and then that's a thing. That's a thing, late, I guess, yeah. Right. We have that, that in common. <laughs> Our brother's taking us to Santa Fe. Good, good for them. Uh, my sister yeah. moved there in the late 80s. So it, it, it was a place that I just really had um, this also passion for, along with photography. I, I liked the arid climate. I liked the mountains. I like the funky nature of Santa Fe. I like the Isn't there interesting energy. geology and rocks there too? Oh, in, yeah. in Santa Fe? Yeah, there's there, the, the great oh, that's thing just about, like done. <laughs> no, no. Geology, once it gets in your system, it stays. Yeah. And so the great thing about the Southwest is that there's no vegetation on the land. The land is just stripped bare. And so you can see the skeleton of the earth in the Southwest. And for a geologist, oh, that's really intriguing. That's really yeah. fascinating to drive around and be able to see the bones of the land that, that you're driving around. And in the East, you can't see it because it's all covered by grass and trees Inter and shrubs. What an interesting and, way to think of that. I've never really thought about it that way. I mean, that's exactly what it's like. It's like a- The other thing that I discovered, yeah. one of the things that, that really bothered me or I, I was concerned about when I left Maine was, was the- the propensity of water being everywhere. Uh, when I drove from my house to Rockport, uh, I drove down to the harbor and I saw the harbor and I saw the ocean every day. And I had a house at the lake and water was just a part of my life. And I worried moving to Santa Fe that I would really miss water. 
I moved to Santa Fe and I didn't miss it at all. And I didn't miss it at all for two reasons. One is because it, it was replaced in Santa Fe by the ocean basins. There's not, there's not water in it, but the ocean basins there. The Galisteo Basin, it used to have water in it. It, it was an ocean basin. And what I realized was what I really was attracted to in the ocean still today is the wide open space and mm-hmm. the, the expansiveness of it and the openness and the possibility of that space. And that was replaced for me really well by the wide open desert spaces of Santa Fe. So the other thing that I realized is that I didn't really do much physically on the water. It was just there. I mean, I didn't sail. I swam a little bit, but it's so damn cold in Maine that you don't swim very much. You kind of jump in and jump back out. California too. Yeah. Freezing out there. um, I don't miss the water at all. I didn't for 30 years living in Santa Fe. I now live in Maine. I'm back in Maine. Mm. I'm around water again. I was just up at the ocean yesterday. We have a summer home on the ocean. And I was up there just reveling in this beautiful view of the Atlantic Ocean. But I also miss Santa Fe. And I'm jealous that you're there, Ruben, and I'm not. Well, you'll be here soon. I will be uh, there soon. Yes. Cool. And you also teach workshops yourself. Like you're not an administrator. You're a photographer. And people take workshops with you. I love teaching and I have done a lot of teaching this past year. I taught a couple of classes over the years, one called cameras don't take pictures, which is kind of a fun class, but I would teach like once every year or every couple of years. I didn't teach a lot. And then what happened was about a year ago, we had this thing called COVID-19 kind of interrupt our lives. If you remember that. <laughs> um, Let me so check my calendar. Yeah. Our world turned upside down. All of our world turned upside down a year ago. March 13th, 2020, a day of infamy, March 13th, <laughs> Friday the 13th. That's when, we, that's when I decided that this thing is for real. This thing is not going away and it's going to close down this country. And so we closed down the workshops on Friday the 13th of March last year. And at that point, I thought this business is done for because the workshops is about people getting on a plane, flying to Santa Fe and meeting in a small room with a big group of people. And, and, go, that and, was and sitting impossible. with a photographer where you watch them work and go out and see their process. It, I, I, I couldn't imagine how you could do it really online. So I understand your concern. So March 14th, March 15th, I was a depressed man because I felt like my 30 year business has just gone belly up. And that was an awful, awful feeling, but I'm not a depressed person. So on Monday, I pulled myself <laughs> back out of the ground. And, um, Two days, that's it, moving on. <laughs> I said, moving on, I'm gonna figure this out. There's this thing called online learning. I know nothing about it. Um, I know that we should be, I, I knew that we should be in the online world up you know, at that point but I couldn't figure it out. I had no idea what that meant. And because our in-person workshops are doing so well, it's like, I don't care about this online stuff. You know, we're all about experiential education and the online stuff just didn't seem to work that way for me. But on that Monday morning, I decided the only way this business is really gonna survive and flourish is if we go online. So we did some quick um, calculations. We talked to some people and we decided to tip our toes in the water. And I decided that I would be the guinea pig. I would be the first person to teach an online class 
because if it failed, it would fail because of me. That's what business owners do. Um, but if it succeeded, then I would know how to run them. Yeah. And I could talk to other people who had also no idea about online learning and convince them that this thing does work. So that was the strategy. And so I came up with a class called Homescapes, a new paradigm. And it was like the perfect class for last year. Sheltering in place. All of last year. Mm -hmm. Kind of, yeah. And um, so the homescapes, they're like the weekly photo assignments that uh, encourage people to discover a theme sort of in their own home. I, I think mm -hmm. I was reading, it was inspired by like Sally Mann, uh, Tony Ray Jones, and you, do they work better, do you think, in per, in person then? Or sorry, do they work better virtually than they than you think they might in person? Because they have access to their sort of own mise-en-scene, if you will. Well, for that class, for homescapes, yes, homescapes has to be done at home. It's hard to come to Santa Fe and do a homescapes workshop. Right. So the answer to your question, Suzanne, is yes. Um, homescapes is the kind of class that really is well-suited for doing it at home. And because at that point we were homebound and we stayed homebound for the last 12 months, we're still homebound. Yes. The, the <laughs> class, good, good point. <laughs> and we hope to get unhomebound but we're not sure. It's like we're on the cusp now of, is it gonna happen? Is it not gonna happen? There's so much uncertainty right now that we just have to go with it. Oh, it's gotta, like, I can't even imagine it not being over soon. Just It will end, but I think this has forever changed our approach. Like I would imagine, and actually I'd love to hear Reed's opinion. Do you think that now that you've done virtual, that you've sort of been able to sort of see the success in it and a, the greater reach, do you think that you'll continue to offer this as part of your offering as sort of this, um, I don't, even if it goes into like a truly hybrid model, what, what are your thoughts on kind of continuing this virtual education piece of the Santa Fe workshops? Well, my thought is absolutely. Oh, <laughs> no question. Um, the, the, here's, here's the new vision for Santa Fe workshops. We will offer online classes year round forever. Oh. We will offer in-person workshops in Santa Fe. Um, definitely in the summer season, cause that's our big season. We'll offer in-person workshops in San Miguel in Mexico in the fall. We will Ooh. offer in-person workshops in the first quarter of the year, international destinations like Cuba, India, Japan, anywhere we can think of and dream of to take people to uh, a new travel destination will happen in the first quarter. Those, those guidelines right now are the vision that I have for the workshops moving forward for the next 30 years. So, I mean, other, there are other workshops in the world, like what distinguishes the Santa Fe workshops? Like how are they different from any regular taking a photo class somewhere? The first thing that distinguished up was Santa Fe. Now you, you have to focus on the things that you have that are unique because there are so many workshops out there now. Everybody and their brother has some kind of a workshop, whether it's photography or cooking or whatever. Especially um, my brother, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> back to photography and writing. Um, for 30 years, what distinguished us was the fact that we were located in Santa Fe. Nobody else had that. Um, we also distinguish ourselves because of the partnerships that we forged. I've always believed that I don't want to do this alone. And so I've always been a firm believer in developing partnerships with other entities in the photographic and now writing universe to help us out. So we established relationships with Apple Computer, 
back in 1990 with uh, Eastman Kodak Company. And since then, those companies have changed. I mean, Kodak is still alive, but not really a player in the photographic universe. So now it's Adobe and it's Nikon and it's Leica and, and the other camera companies and B&H and also alliances with nonprofits like Center and Texas Photo Society and the New Orleans Photo Alliance. And we're always, always partnering with other entities to, um, to offer programming, to offer discounts to, to their members, to do collaborative programming that might be not outside of Santa Fe. So that's another, it's not unique to us. There are other, other workshops that obviously partner with other companies. Um, another difference is that we are incredibly well-organized and that <laughs> is because I am incredibly well-organized and I'm a very linear thinker and I'm vigilant and I'm diligent and it's just the way that I live my life. And so obviously the personality that an organization takes oftentimes is led to the founder and the leader of that organization. And so a lot of workshops, main workshops included, um, are more loosely run than our program. Mm -hmm. we're, we're very tightly organized and thoughtfully run. However, that doesn't mean that we aren't flexible, spontaneous, serendipitous, creative. My philosophy is you, you provide a really, really solid foundation organizationally and then the people come into this equation in this creative environment and it allows them because of that base to be really free and, and spontaneous and creative. Uh, I like to have people create from that solid base as opposed to coming into an organization that's not the so well organized and kind of chaotic. And that means that you have to worry a lot about what's happening, what time, is, what time is lunch, and where am I right. going for a field trip yeah. this afternoon? And there's too many questions you have to ask yourself if it's not really buttoned down. Yeah, so, you're taking care of the structure so it allows them to be creative. And mm -hmm. you've, you know, you've really, I read an uh, article that you, you really invoted, uh, devoted, or invoted, I'm not sure what invoted means, but <laughs> you've really uh, devoted uh, your kind of entire adult life to photographic education. I actually read a quote, which I'm going to read, I make images to see the world more clearly and myself more deeply. I photograph to discover and to reveal. I strive for emotional impact with my pictures. I wanted to ask you, how does teaching photography help you with your ability to discover and reveal? Well, if anybody who, who teaches or has taught knows, you learn so much in the process of teaching. You learn about <laughs> yourself, your um, strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. When you, when you teach, you have to crystallize verbally what you know or what you think you know. And that doesn't happen in most of our lives except in that teaching environment. You know, to have to explain to a group of students why you photograph a certain way, what you believe is true about photography, to be able to articulate about their photographs, what's good and what's not good. Uh, all those things are very educational for you, the teacher, because you've got to really think long and hard about what it is that you really believe in, what you trust, what you respect, how you go about living your life photographically. Most photographers are not that verbally articulate. Most photographers are visual creatures. That's why they're so good at what they do. And so to ask a photographer to just talk about what they know, what they've learned, what they believe in, 
most are gonna go I, yeah I, yeah i i you know i i i will that, that i don't know that yeah. make, that's being that's able to take good. being able to take great pictures and to, to explain how to take great pictures are completely different you know you need both to have a great workshop right, right. well and sometimes it, it actually feels that if you you hear the photographer talk about it and you're like, oh, that's it. That's all. It almost detracts from how much you were interpreting. I had a, um, a modern dance choreographer, Hei Kung Lee. She used to say, she would never tell us what the pieces were about. What, she's like, what does it mean to you? That's what, it, that's what is the most important thing. And I used to find it so frustrating because I want to know, you know, what is your intention? And it's like, my intention is what's getting me here what I need you to see is what you're getting from it. And I, I think in a way it's kind of like most of the time, if you don't have the photographer there, if you don't have a blurb or you don't have a write-up, it becomes that solo, that solo interpretation or a, a crit or a discussion. And you're kind of, you're interpreting. Um, but then if you have a photographer or you have the artist there and they're just like, it's a blah, blah, blah. And it's a throwaway comment or a throwaway thought. It kind of, it almost weakens your experience. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys agree. Uh, I have have another question about just this idea of revealing and um, and sort of sharing. You had mentioned homescapes earlier, and your own homescapes that you have in your portfolio. They have this like doc. They're very you know they're they're kind of they're obviously homescapes. So it's, it's documentary. It's um they're really intimate. They're very personal. Um, this like casualness, and I, I mentioned like mise en scène before, but it's just like they're beautifully done. I, I have to ask how many photos does it take for you to get that one shot that feels like that's it. That's the one that's the homescape. Takes one. Really? You just take one and move on. No, I didn't say that. It just, oh. <laughs> it, it just takes, it takes one image, but I come from a, a film background. And uh -huh. so I have a different mindset in terms of making images than a lot of people who started in the digital era, because as Ruben knows, in the film era, um, your images were precious because you didn't have that many of them. You had 36 images that you could yeah. take with a roll of film. Yeah. Or if you're shooting with um, medium format, 12, or if you're shooting with four by five or five by seven or eight by 10, you have one. And so learning in the film world slows you down and made you be more judicious in how you, or when you click the shutter to make an image. And so that's the world that I grew up in. And so I don't take many pictures. Uh, in this day and age with digital, you can take a thousand images with a motor drive pretty quickly and it doesn't cost you anything because you're not developing the film. There's not a lot of work involved in editing those thousand images. You can edit them in an hour and come down to one, but that's a waste of time. Yeah. So um, I think the key I th for me is to be more thoughtful about going out and creating images. And so for, I will, to answer your question, I think the way you want it answered, I would probably make four or five images of a scene that I thought was worth there was something there to photograph. There was some mm -hmm. emotion, there was some light, there was some activity, there was something going on that attracted me. But I'm not, I'm not making 15, 20, 30, 50 images trying to get one out of it. I'm making yeah. a very small number of images and then going back and looking at those four or five and deciding which one is the right one. And maybe none of them are. So then I just move on. Do you, 
Do you think that didn't work? Do you think that digital photographers today can ever get that sense that we had of scarcity? So they really think through when they push the shutter release button or, or is that like an unnecessary discipline? Like let them shoot a ton and just do the editing. Cause I agree with you. I, I feel like my photography is better because I'm thinking, calculating, like I only got a few more pictures here. Let's not, I'm not going to shoot that one. It's a but, mindset. So that mindset is teachable. So and one of the things that I do in, in my class once in a while is limit people to the number of images I want them to make with an assignment. I'll say the assignment today is to photograph your physical home, photograph the light and the framing of, of something that you, you find attractive and um, make five images of that scene and then move on to another scene and make five images. So li limit them even with, even with digital on how many times you actually click the shutter. And so if, if you do that enough and they like that process and they see the value of that process, then maybe they'll change their mindset to one of that scarcity issue that you talked about. But it's not going to come intuitively, I don't think, to people because they're just used to the, the, uh, the multiple exposures that you can make. I mean, people use to put the camera on burst and they burst through and they make, you know, they make, what is it, 20 images per yeah. second. Uh, all I, I see a lot more than that, but all I see is how much it's going to take so much work if they keep doing this bursting to find, I mean, yeah, they'll find the right, the right frame, but it costs could, time. It doesn't cost film, but it costs your time later. Time is money. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've also done along with the homescapes. You were also talking about the other classes that you're doing that, which are travel classes. Um, you've done some really beautiful portrait work in Mexico and, Cuba, the portraits are honestly stunning and I encourage everyone to go to your website to check them out. They, they have this feeling of being so alive that you could, I, I feel like I could almost start to see someone take a breath or start talking to me at any minute. They're mm. like, just like this beautiful richness in black and white that it's, even though it is a kind of, uh, you know, the grayscale of black and white, it feels like I'm somehow seeing it in, in more color that's there. Um, there's an image I wanted to ask you about. It's a man sitting in a chair. He's, he's bald and he's sort of looking down and he's rubbing his head. And most of your portraits are like looking at camera. Mm -hmm. um, but he, I found myself just staring at this picture for a very long time. I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about. He's sitting in a chair. It's a pretty dark composition. And I wanted to ask, what is the story behind that photograph? That photograph for me stands for the sadness that the older generation in Cuba feel for their country right now. And so that was a, a situation where we took a group of students to a private home in Havana. And there were probably a dozen students in this old dilapidated home. And they were all photographing the, the members of this family. And at one point, everybody kind of got exhausted making their pictures. And because I wasn't a student, I, I was in the background. Uh, I've been thinking about photographing this old man and um, he just looked sad to me. And a lot of people in Cuba don't look sad because there's a vitality and a vibrancy to the people in Cuba that even, in spite of the hardships of their life and the limit, limited nature of what they have in life, 
they they have this love of life. They have a love for dance and a passion for family. And they're just a gracious, wonderful people. This old guy just didn't have it. And so I wanted to portray him in that light, uh, in that way. And so I found a chair and I put it in, in a uh, swash of, of um, sunlight. And I took, I think, again, probably 10 images of him. But at one point, that's when he put his head down and put his hand on it. And yeah. that for me was that forlornness, that, that sense of, of despair that mm -hmm. I sensed in him, which is unique. And so it's, it's really the only image that feels that way in all of those portraits. Yeah. I think it's the only portrait that I can remember right now, Suzanne, that, that I don't have eye contact. I'm not making eye contact with the people in my frame. And mm -hmm. that's, that's an important thing I wanna, I wanna talk about is it's really important for me and I think important for photographers to maintain eye contact and connectedness to your subject when you're photographing. And that, that subject you know, oftentimes is people, but it could be the landscape, it could be architecture, it could be anything. The, the thing that people don't understand is that when you take that hunk of metal called a camera and put it up to your eye, you're blocking your vision out to the world and you're blocking the world's vision to you. And you can see out to the viewfinder, but the world can't see you, they can't see your eyes. And so I've learned how to photograph without looking through the viewfinder. And so I would say 90% of the time today, I photograph without looking through the viewfinder. Really? Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. so shocked to hear that. I, like, I feel like, isn't the composition of the image a critical part of your process of moving everything around in the frame very yeah, sure. nuanced ways? Yeah, 24 millimeter lens with you know get, getting in close. So basically I, I hold the camera basically just, just below or just kind of at mouth level instead of eye level. Oh, so, so you're looking over the top um, of it kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the important thing is to keep your connectedness to the subject. And again, it could be a landscape because landscapes move, wind comes in, light moves, things move in there. Uh, but let's just talk about people. You're photographing people and it's important for me, at least, to have a connection with that person and what they're giving, what they're offering me as a gift, as a photographer, what they're telling me about themselves, what they're, what kind of who they are and what they're about, trying to find an essence of who these people are. And so you can't do that when you have a viewfinder and a hunk of metal pressed up against your eye. It's only it's one way vision. You're looking out. They can't look in and yeah. see you and feel you and know what you're yeah. talking about. So you use, use short lenses, like you I keep short in, lenses. Yeah, you like that intimacy. Yeah. I'm using a, I'm using a, a Nikon Z series mirrorless camera, the 24 to 70. I use it on 24 millimeter most of the time. So I know what the, I know what the lens sees. Mm -hmm. I know I use automatic exposure. I use automatic focus. I don't have to think about any of that stuff. So um, I'm, I'm good enough technically, just barely good enough technically that I can set my camera to what I want to get in terms of the light and the composition. And then I just let the scene in front of me flow. Yeah. And if, if I'm at all concerned about what I'm getting, I just have to tip that camera a little bit, look at the back of the camera and go, yep, I got it. And then go back square. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the, the difference is you're not like this looking, you know, with a yeah. camera, you're, you're, you're right down here, just yeah. a little bit lower. And, or if you want to be really adventuresome, take the camera out and you go like this, 
or put it up <laughs> over your head or you put it down on the floor. Now it's so much fun to photograph without looking through your viewfinder because, and this harkens back again to the film days, the latent image. The latent image doesn't really exist in digital photography. The latent image refers to the idea that you make 12 exposures or 36 exposures on a roll of film, but you don't see what you got. You're, you're exposing yeah. the film and you don't see it until you have taken the film out of the camera, put it on a reel, developed it, dried it, put it on a light table. That's a long process that it yeah. takes before you see your image. Mm -hmm. And part of the fun for me was uh, looking at that, looking either, either at the film strip itself before I cut it up or on the contact sheet, if I really had patience to wait until the contact sheet dried to look at it. I usually didn't. Usually I was holding it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's good enough. It, it reminded you, like, you just need to identify which is the one because you remember what it looked like when you took right. it. So you know that's the picture. Yeah. But I love, I love that love. you're doing this and like bringing that back, like that you get to, you'll see what it looks like at the end. Cause I actually find it. So when I see friends taking pictures or whatever, it's so disruptive to be like, Oh, let me see that. And it's like, then they're like, you're showing the back of the camera or whatever. And then resetting this is casual amateur, like group photography, mm -hmm. not like professionals, but it's so disruptive. So I love that you're encouraging just learn to trust yourself. And the more that you do that, the more you're developing this skill that you have that, maintains that intimacy that is so powerful in your imagery. I, I picture you using like, like the old school two and a quarter, you know, like bro, you're looking down like at it. And so you've got, you <laughs> open your jacket and the camera's <laughs> hidden there. That's like how the old street photographers worked. Like they didn't mm -hmm. hold it in front of their face. They were just kind of, they were spying on people. They just, the, the lens would poke out of their jacket and they look down at the, at the, mm -hmm. the glass from the top. Right. I, that's how I picture you working kind of. <laughs> It's really important to become intuitive with all of this. Um, I think you want photography to be like driving a car. You don't think mm -hmm. about it. It's mm -hmm. intuitive. You just, you just do it because you've done it so much. So I'm a firm believer in one camera, one lens, keep your variables yeah. down to a minimum, know how yeah. to use that so incredibly well that it's second nature. Yeah. If you can be, if you can use the technology, the cameras and the lenses, like you drive a car, then you can respond to the world out there in a, in a true and, and focused kind of way, as opposed to fumbling with, yeah. um, do I have the right lens on? Do I have, is my ISO set properly? Mm. Is the automatic focus working or is it not? There's, there's a problem here. Um, and so that's why simplify, simplify, simplify allows you, I believe, to become the best photographer you can because you wanna to respond to the world, not to let the world respond to you. If, if you're focused on, on technology, you're yeah. not focused on the world. Violent agreement here. And it's exactly, I, I mean, I think I'm exactly the same way. I mm -hmm. think that over, over emphasis on technology for people, I think they're missing the point. You can pick up any camera as long as it's second nature and you know how to make it do what you want to do. It's just an extension of your body. Um, you know, I want I'm sort of looking at the pictures over your head. I kind of reminded that um, through the, the early days of our podcast, we really want to understand pictures that you have hung up in your own home by other people that you see every day. And I was curious if you could describe some of the pictures you have and we'll maybe show people like who's behind you. I, I mean, I recognize the Arnold Newman back there, mm -hmm. which I also have in my bedroom. Actually, I love that photograph so much. What What's behind you? Can you tell us? Okay. Yeah. Um, the image right here, which I'm pointing to, is Eva Rubinstein. 
And it's a photograph that she made of um, one of the old classic main houses when she was teaching in Rockport at the main workshops. And I just, I love the image from Eva. So that's, that's it stands for Maine. Next to Eva is Bruce Davidson with mm. a little girl running through a cemetery in Wales, part of his Welsh series. Uh, again, black and white. Actually, they're all black and white. They're all black and white. I have yeah. exclusively black and white, but um, that was, those are the ones that I put up there. Uh, and then in the middle is Lilo Raymond, another great friend who taught at the main workshops. And it's an interior of a, uh, a shade coming down and, and a plant in front of him. It's just a simple frame. And then obviously mm -hmm. the, the famous Stravinsky image from Arnold Newman. Uh, and it, uh, these are all people that I met at the main workshop. So th these images go back to the late seventies and the eighties. Uh, and then on the far side here is a panoramic from Craig Stevens, who is my first mentor in photography. He's a person I took that two week class with in Rockport in 1975. And so Craig has to be honored up there, but uh, I, I, am, I collect like you do. Well, I shouldn't say that. I am a, a small collector compared to what you have in your collection, <laughs> your family collection. Uh -huh. But I, I truly believe it's important to have great photographs around us and see them every day. And, and even if you don't see them, you notice them, you feel them, you have them in your presence. And that makes you a better photographer to look at great photography or to even glance at it or get glimpses of it. So I don't, I don't intently look at these pictures every day, but I walk down my hallway and on each side of the hallway, there are pictures from Keith Carter and Sam Abel and Arthur Meyerson and John Sexton. And, and I feel them, they, they have a presence for me, even though I don't look at them every day. Sure, sure. Well, I, I, do, I do have one last question, actually. Um, if you could describe your photography in one word, what word would you choose? Engaged. Ooh, I like that. Ooh. Go into that. that we, haven't, we have not heard that word before, but that's so perfect for you. Yeah, yes, nice. yeah. I love it. Thank you. Good question. I like that fi final question. Yeah. <laughs> final question. And uh, just the last is, is there, um, where can our guests find you? This summer, we have a, a stellar lineup. We took people that had classes last year and asked them to come back again and teach for us. So um, Keith Carter and Kira Crowell and Maggie Taylor and Laurie Klein and um, I can't think of all the names right now, but there, there are only 18 workshops. We've decided to, to narrow down the number of workshops that we offer and try to fill them all. Because if you fill them all, then everyone's happy. Um, <laughs> and so we've only got 18 workshops over the course of six weeks. So it's three a week for six weeks, starting July 5th, going through the middle of August. And so I'd say half of them are full now. And so if you're interested in summer workshops, you should probably jump on our website and take a look pretty soon. If, if that doesn't work for you, then San Miguel in the fall also mm. has um, some stellar people like Nevada Weir and Keith Carter again, and Sam Mabel and Arthur Meyerson, Day of the Dead workshop. So yeah, the best way right great. now to stay in touch with the workshops is our newsletter. We have a, we have a weekly newsletter comes out every Friday morning and it features whatever upcoming program is, the specials. Um, so that's the best way. Really, our, all of our marketing right now 
happens in a newsletter on Friday. That's it. We're not printing catalogs anymore. We're not doing ads. We are basically putting all of our eggs in one basket right now. That, mm-hmm. will, that will change as we move into our new normal. But because of the, cons- the financial constraints of the last year and paring down the business and going online, mm-hmm. everything is being marketed. Our, our voice out there to the world is in our newsletter on Friday. So that's what I suggest you get at this point to stay in tune with what we're offering in our programming, in-person workshops and online workshops and our perspective series and creativity continues series. And there's so much that we're doing online. It's just, it's kind of staggering to me how much we've ramped <laughs> up from a year ago when it was one workshop with me. And now we have like 30 workshops going on in a given month with different programming, some free, some you have to pay for, some short. We have a short little session with Pei Katron, who works for Adobe, and is a social media influencer. It's a two-hour presentation on Saturday in April about Instagram strategies for photographers. So okay. two hours of Pei talking about what you need to know about using Instagram as a photographer. I'm hopeful that um, the Zoom courses will help broaden people's exposure and opportunity to experience Santa Fe workshops. I mean, it's, it's awesome to come to Santa Fe and I really hope to be able to do stuff in person here too. But like, I love that a new audience can start to get, get into what the workshops are offering. Absolutely. Expand the, expand the reach. And so to sign up for that newsletter, you can go to santafeworkshops.com. Um, is that correct, Reed? And to see more of your photography, they can find you at reedcalanan.com. That's R-E-I-D-C-A-L-L-A-N-A-N.com. Awesome. Yep, that's right. Got Reed, it. thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's great to see you. It's always fun. I like when you introduce my classes, it's kind of fun to hear your stories of how we connected up and anyway thank you for including me and welcome to our show hopefully you can come back and tell us more about how things are going later in the season thank you i definitely look forward to having you back i definitely i had a question about a muhammad ali story so uh we'll have to leave that as a teaser until you come (laughs) back again um but i will go ahead and wrap it up our show is recorded and produced in well today's episode in south florida santa fe and maine Thank you to our guest, Reed Callanan. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. And leave reviews and ratings, especially if you like us. We do get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. If you know someone who might get something from us, send them a link. Thank you to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music and all of you for hanging out with us today. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. Until next time.